Hello, everyone, and welcome, welcome, welcome to Authors on the Air. I'm Hank Phillippe Ryan, sitting in, happily sitting in today for the wonderful Pam Stack, because today I get to interview Reese Bowen, my dear pal and brilliant, brilliant author about her brand new book, The Venice Sketchbook, which is absolutely a treasure. Now, you know Reese Bowen now. She is the New York Times bestselling author of 40 books, maybe more than 40 books. I mean, Reese, how many books? Do you have any idea what number this is? I think it's 40, 45, maybe 44, 45. Yeah, I think so. That means that when I read your bio on the last book of yours, it means you'd written five more books since I read the bio. Either that or they didn't update the bio. I'm not sure which, but no, no, I still do two books a year, which is, you know, it's crazy lady. But um, uh, I'm, what would I have done in the past year if I hadn't written what we all have done? I mean, it was great to be locked in a room and write and not go anywhere. That's what we've both done for a year. I know that's it's interesting, isn't it? The writing during the pandemic was so, uh, so different for me as well. I was very disturbed by it and very unsettled by it. And it took me a while to get back in the swing of it. How was it for you? I know you were in the midst of writing a book or two. Yeah. Um, did you just keep going or did you have a pause? You know, I had all this time and I kept telling myself, how lucky are you? You can sit and get this finished earlier. I found it was very hard to be creative. Did you oh. find that? I just found my brain was, there's like all the time we've got this thing on my shoulders, sitting there whispering, you have to be careful all the time. You can't go out, you know, if you ever catch this, you're going to kill your husband. And that was just sitting there behind me all the time. So my brain was not all free to just, you know, free fall the way it normally does. So um, uh, I don't think I was any more productive than I could have been otherwise. I mean, I, I would have expected to get sort of four or five books done, you know me. But um, I, I got my deadlines both done, but I I can't say that I was uh, enjoying everything. I was making myself. You will write your five pages today and you will not leave until you've done it. Rather I, than, yeah. It's interesting. And I haven't talked to any authors during the pandemic who haven't had that. I mean, I think it's having an open heart and an open mind and this sort of, as you say, fear sitting on your shoulder. And I really thought about what we do. You know, I thought, I'm writing commercial fiction. I'm writing a psychological thriller. Is, is that what the world needs right now? And I have to say that at some point, after about a month, I thought, yes, it is. What we do as storytellers is the most important thing that anyone can do now. It, did that enter your mind at all? I mean, you are such an inveterate storyteller. And the Venice Sketchbook is such a fantastic story. Were you able to sort of fall into the spell of your own new world? I mean, it's always safe inside a book, right? It's always well, that, safe. You know, that, was, that was the best thing, you know, the fact that I could go to Venice every day. And mm -hmm. I had all my photos from the last research there and just look at them. And I, of course, not being able to travel, I'd look at them and I'd go, oh, yeah. Venice. Oh, you know, but at least it was an escape. I mean, I'm so glad I wasn't writing something that was a really dark, tense thriller because the world was so dark, you know, and so at least I could escape. And the other thing I found very early on was that people needed us. I had so many people who emailed me and said, thank you for your books. I'm rereading the whole Royal Spinest series or I'm reading because I need to escape and I'm in this little room and it helps me escape. So. You know, I was very well, well aware that we were actually in a silly way providing a service, which I hadn't thought of before. 
No, I agree with you. I mean, the idea of being a storyteller is pretty time honored. And in all kinds of times of trouble, telling yeah. stories is what soothes people and sort of brings us together. And also, especially, you know, when you got to go back to Venice in your book, it's a reminder of normalcy. Yeah. And a reminder that we can be solving someone else's problems, which is exactly what you do in the Venice sketchbook. Talk a little bit about how you fell in love with Venice in the first oh, place. Yes. Well, I love to talk about this. Venice has been part of my life, most of my life. Um, it started off, I had an aunt who's very like the aunt in this book, the very prim and proper British spinster. And she was a huge Italiophile. And she went to Venice every Easter. And she always stayed at the Pensioni Accademia. And she would say, there's only one place to stay in Venice, and that's the Pensioni Accademia, because you see it has a garden. And if one has been walking around and one is hot and tired, you can sit in the shade and they will bring you a citron presse. So she always said that. Um, and of course, when I was a teenager and sort of of romantic ilk, I, I started thinking, why does she go to Venice every Easter? What if she meets somebody there, somebody we don't even know about? So that germ was planted years ago. And then, and then my parents, inspired by my aunt, started renting a little villa in Treviso, just outside Venice. And they'd drive across the causeway and park in the parking garage, give my brother and me some money and say, see you at five o'clock. And how old were you? I was about in mid-teens, so probably 13, 14, and he was about eight or nine. I mean, so, that wouldn't happen today. No. I mean, would you let your kids wander a strange city alone? Absolutely not. But they had no, no. The other thing they did was they always went and had coffee in St. Mark's Square, which now costs you about 30 bucks a cup. So I'm sure they wouldn't have done it today. But my brother and I, we were free to roam. We tried all the little back alleys. We found out where you got good food very cheaply and where the best gelato was. We took the, the Vaporetto across to the Lido and went swimming. So I knew the city pretty well. And many years later, I took my oldest daughter back when she graduated from high school. And I hadn't been back since. And we'd be wandering around and I'd go, wait, if you go through that little doorway and Claire would say, you can't go through someone's backyard. And I'd say, ah, you wait. And we'd go through a little doorway and through a little archway. And I'd say, I bet you come out too. Yes, you do. So. I remembered all these little things. So it was, it, it's been a, a lifelong love affair, really. And so to write a book about Venice, especially at a time like this when I needed something really to touch my heart, was, was such a wonderful gift. So did you go back, and I want to say, forgive me for having first yeah. chapter fun on my name. You know, I do first chapter fun as well. Yes. And I confess that I forgot to change my name before I came on Authors on the Air. So I know I'm on Authors on the Air. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Anyway, fast forwarding a little bit. So as an adult then with more of a book in mind, did you go back with a book in mind or did you go back just for fun and the book evolved? No, I went back. I always, when I have to write a book, I have to go back to the place specifically for that book because that's where I find I get the good stuff. You know, you're wandering around a back street and you hear someone singing opera or you watch someone in Venice, you watch a little boat pull up in a canal and somebody lowers a basket down, puts a loaf of bread in it and it goes up again. You know, things like that are so uniquely Venetian. So I went back knowing what I wanted to research. And essentially, first of all, it was I wanted to walk exactly where my heroine was going to walk when she I knew where, where I wanted more or less where I wanted her to stay. 
So I followed where she was going to walk and I wanted to choose exactly the house where she was going to be given the top floor. So I, I went up and down till I found the perfect one, took photos of it. Um, so I did a lot of walking and a lot of um, going back to older cafes and things like that. But then I spent a day in the um, Correa Library, in the Correa Museum in St. Mark's Square. And I knew I wanted to look up uh, Venice in the 30s and 40s, mm. especially there were, there were two things that drove this book, I think, that really made me get down to writing it. And one was the year before we had been at the Biennale, which is the big open air art exhibit. And I had a, I bought a book on the history of the Biennale and it said it had been held in 1940 and in 1942, 1942. And I thought to myself, they had an international art exhibit in the middle of the war. Who would have gone? You know, they were they were on the same side as Italy, but by 1940, I think even Russia had left them. So who, who would have attended this? And so it was rather intriguing to me, the fact that Venice is so in love with its art that it would have held its big art exhibit even in the middle of the war. And I thought well, that, that, art that art transcended a war. Yeah. Somehow. I mean, it's interesting because my dad was in World War II um, and he carried a book of poetry with him in World War II. And I promise you this has a point. Um, and I asked him once why he carried this book of poetry with him. And he said, it's to remind, it was to remind myself that there was beauty in the world. And I wonder if the art exhibit was the same way. You know, the, the people were so fraught and it was so terrifying and no one knew what was going to happen. And yet this art, like your books, transcends um, a terrible time. Well, you know, Venice was very much protected to start with. Both sides agreed at the very beginning they would never bomb it because it was such a treasure. So you had this little island, and then, of course, it's right next to the, the very lush countryside of the Benito where they grew lots of vegetables and they caught all their food from the sea. So they didn't have this sort of starvation rations of most of Europe. And so I think they lived in this lovely little bubble to start with. Venetians have always been very tolerant. You know, the very first ghetto happened in Venice. It was the word ghetto means iron foundry, I think, and that was the Jews lived around the iron foundry. But so it's always been a great tolerance towards Jews. They didn't have to wear a yellow star. They went quite freely. And then, of course, everything changed when Italy changed sides and the Germans came in with awful retribution. So, you know, I knew that at the beginning, everything would be quite smooth in Venice, even though there was a war going on in the rest of the world, which which created this interesting little bubble. You know, here I am in this bubble going to an art exhibit and the rest of the world's dying. So it was very strange. So you were saying you went to the library? Yes, I went to the career library and I handed them my card and I told them I was researching a book on Venice in the 1930s and the early 40s, and especially how the Jews in Venice were treated. So they took me to a little room and then two librarians kept bringing me all these books and they kept, they're all great, huge books and piling them around me so that this huge bastion came up around me of all these books of course they're all in italian um which i read but slowly um and um uh so there was no way i was going to get through them all in the end i had to say you know thank you you're so kind but i really can't get through anymore and then what i hit upon was i would flick through i would find the pages i wanted in a particular book i'd hand them to john who would photograph them your husband 
Yes, so that afterwards um, I had everything. I could read it nice and slowly and really take it all in. Oh, that's brilliant. You know, that was that was just part of the research. A lot of the research is just literally reminding myself about the food. That's the hard part. The food and the gelato and the coffee. No one has to do the tough research. I know. I know. But you did a lot of sketches. I know. And let me just show. Can I show? This? Yes, please do. The hardcover book, and you can see that it's quite beautiful. But if you take off the dust jacket, if I can do this, if you take off the dust jacket, there's a beautiful sketch. I'm going to get this right. The camera um, underneath. Reese, talk about this. This is so. This is such a treasure in this book. Every time I go on any sort of trip, I take my sketchbook with me, and I sit and sketch everywhere. And you know that. It's the sketching that brings a place back to life better than any photograph ever can. You remember exactly where you were when you made a sketch. So I had my sketches of Venice. And when I was doing the Venice sketchbook, I happened to mention to my editor, I have some of my sketches if you'd like to see them. So she said, oh, do send me. So I sent them and she said, I'd love to use this somehow on the cover. So then they did. You know, Lake Union always has some sort of lovely little treat inside the dust jacket. Mm -hmm. Most people never take off the dust jacket. But if you do on one of my books, you will see something beautiful inside. And this this time, it's one of my sketches, which is which is it's very nice, you know. I mean, oh, very nice, not, very nice is not the half of it. <laughs> you saw it for the first time, yeah. I mean, what a Renaissance woman! When you saw your art on the book for the first time, yeah. what do you think that that really? I mean, I have to tell you what a thrill it was. I'm used to seeing my books, even though I mean, you and I have done a lot of books, but still, every time I go into a bookshop. And there's my book on a shelf. Don't you find you get a thrill? You go, oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. My books. Yeah. Because when we were growing up, yeah. And we all, you know, we read and voraciously read and we went to the libraries and saw these beautiful books that we loved and went to bookstores when we got older and saw the books we loved. And, you know, I, I know we both thought, oh, wouldn't it be so fabulous to write a book? I wonder how you do that. Yeah. And now there they are. Uh, it's, it, I will never not be get goosebumps from that yeah. well my my most amazing experience like, like that was a lot of my books are translated into other languages these days and one year we were invited i was invited to the warsaw book fair oh. and i was taken down to krakow which is the the beautiful city in the south of poland and the escort was taking us around and she took us around the, the giant big square and she was pointing out that the bookstore called Matras was one of the oldest in Europe. It had been started in 16-something. And she said, and this is a you know, very famous big bookstore. And I looked and I said to John, oh, it's one of my books. And then I looked and I went, the whole window was a display of my books. I have never seen that in America. I mean, and of course, you can imagine the escort who'd been uh, you know, taking around these two tourists. Suddenly it's like, oh, my goodness. Yes. She dragged me into the into the store and went, you know, and they went, oh, so it was, and so I had to sit and sign all the books, but um, that was a huge. That's quite astonishing. And also so revealing of how books um, can knit the world together. I mean, I know people watching this broadcast are from all over the world. I just saw someone say, hello, Lori, Lori Schoenfeld is saying hi. And Tan is saying never miss Royal's finest. We should talk about that. Oh yeah. Yeah. We, we don't, these kinds of broadcasts reach everywhere, and that's because your books, your books reach everywhere. Before we need to talk about the story 
Yes, we yes we will. Let's talk. Let's talk about this book. So huh? you tell me what it. I hate this question, Reese, but I have to ask you: What is this about? Just talk about the plot briefly, and then we can talk a little bit about what it means. Yeah. Um. It's hard to talk about the plot without giving too many spoilers. But anyway, it is a, a story of two British women, um, two generations apart. So the story spans most of a century. And we start off with 18-year-old Juliet being taken to Venice by her very prim and proper aunt. And when she falls into a canal trying to rescue some kittens, she's rescued by a handsome Italian. And then we fast forward. Juliet's life has not gone how she expected it to go. She's learned to deal with disappointment. But fate gives her a chance to go back to Venice. And she does just as World War II is about to start. And then she finds herself trapped in Venice for a life that includes forbidden love and great danger. And then we fast forward to 2001 when Letty is an old woman and she lies dying. And at her side is her beloved great niece, Caroline, who has had also a life that's proved disappointing and worrying. And as Aunt Letty dies, she insists that Caroline takes a box. And it's only a small little cardboard box. And Caroline expects some lovely jewels or something to be in it. Inside, there are three keys and a sketchbook of Venice. And um, Caroline surmises that Maybe Aunt Letty wants her to go and scatter her ashes in Venice. But of course, then she has to find out what the keys might open. And we do find out. Now, I can just hear the footsteps of people running away from this interview to go get this book. <laughs> Not right now. Don't go right now. Go to get the Venice sketchbook. But what a marvelous um, setup for a story. The three keys, and I remember that we talked about this long ago about your idea of the three keys. Uh, yeah, yeah. Did you know when you started the book what those keys would be? Um, I knew what one of them would be. I knew what the, yeah, I, I think I did. I, on at least two of them. I knew what two of them would be. Um, and I, one of them came to me because when we were walking through Venice, you know, when, when you're doing that early research, you've only got the bare bones of a story. We were, I was trying to find a bookshop that's right behind St. Mark's Square. And you come out, you go through where the big clock is, and you come out to a nice little street behind. And we were walking towards the bookshop, and I passed a bank. And it had this very beautiful logo of St. Mark, you know, the, the lion and everything of Venice. And it was right there hanging on the bank. And I thought, oh well, that's interesting. That's something she could come across. And so that sort of, that gave me an idea to take things further. So yeah, I love it when you come up, come across something and you think, oh, I could really use that. And I love the way your mind works because, you know, you're just picking little bits and pieces of treasure yeah. from places that you go and taking those puzzle pieces and making your own new picture from, from them. So do you, I mean, I, I need to know if you have an outline of these. If you didn't know what the third key was, it means you, you didn't know, or did you know how the book would end, or were you just on this adventure? I No, I knew Aunt Letty would have a forbidden, hidden life in Venice, and I knew that Caroline would have to go back and somehow her interactions would make things right. Um, I knew that much. I tell you what I didn't know. I didn't know how things would end in Venice for 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 Juliet. Uh, yeah, I keep 
her name is Juliet. She's normally called Letty by her family, but Juliet, Julietta in them. Uh, yes. yes. And interesting, I got a starred review the other day from Library Journal, and they said the clever hinting of Romeo and Juliet at the beginning of the book. And I thought, oh, that's brilliant. I don't think I thought of it, but I'll take it anyway. That's <laughs> because you called her Juliet. Yeah, and he teases. He says, well, that's amazing because I'm Romeo. And she goes, really? You know, she's 18. And he goes, no, no, I'm not really, just teasing. I remember that moment, but it is such a flirtatious teasing. Yeah moment and you can tell from you know anybody who reads romances knows that that's that that moment is the beginning yeah. of something yeah. he tells us that he's literate and he yeah. tells tells us that he's quick and it tells us that something something is about to happen yeah. i mean you wrote this in two timelines talk a little bit about um the juggling of that and the balance of that i you know i do books in two timelines as well often and people say did you write one timeline and then the other? And I say, no, you know, how could, how could you do it that way? No. Um, but do you do it that way? Um, I did. The last book I did in two timelines was called The Tuscan Child. And mm -hmm. I did. I completely wrote Hugo's story. And then I completely wrote Joanna's story. And then we have a long hallway at our house. And I stood there. I printed it all out. And I put Hugo's chapters all the way down the hall. And then I thought, oh when do we need to know this? So I kept putting in Joanna's chapters and luckily there was no draft, but um, you know, that was the only way I could actually visually see. With this one, it was a lot more organic. Like um, we had quite a big chunk of Juliet because you didn't want to, you didn't want to go away when everything was so intense for her. Mm -hmm. And then I'd think, oh yeah, well, what would Caroline do when she found out this? So it was a lot more, I think Juliet's story is the main one with Caroline fitting in with it more rather than two equal stories. So, um, yeah, yeah, it's always, it's always iffy. It's always a challenge because you know you want to tell two stories, but you don't want to give away something in one story that's going to spoil the other story, right? Oh, exactly. I mean, I, I was interviewing, I, had, I was at an interview with, with Sally Field once mm -hmm. and talking about how she doesn't like as an actor to read the end of her scripts as she's doing the beginning of the story of the script. Yeah. Of the of the movie because yeah. she calls it that she's she finds herself playing to the end as oh, she yeah. that's so true yeah that's so interesting so because if you know what's going to happen you yeah. can't you sort of can't help but foreshadow and and in the early half of your book um, she doesn't know what's going to happen later but you but you as the author do yeah so the difficulty with 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 Letty with Juliet. I knew she'd have to survive because obviously she's there at 91 dying. Um, and I knew it would not be good, but I really didn't know what she was going to have to go to go through until I was writing it. And then it became very harrowing because it got worse and worse and worse. And you suddenly realize all the things that are going to happen to her, which are going to be so shattering for her that she really shuts off from life after that. So when I'm in the middle of this and knowing what's going to happen to her next, you know, obviously one would have liked characters to survive. One would have liked to have found after the war that certain characters have survived and you know, you couldn't. And it was, it was heartbreaking. I mean, that is in, so fascinating because 
I'm imagining you in your office um, in California. Did you write it or, or Arizona? Um, I wrote most of it. No, I wrote it all in Arizona because we were pretty much trapped in the pandemic. We normally come back like in March or April, but we weren't going to travel at that stage because everything was so scary. So we stayed till June and then it got to 110 every day. And I said to John, I don't care how dangerous it is. We're going home. And but So I'm picturing you in the sweltering Arizona um, back in Venice. As your, as your writer brain is sort of blossoming this story of what's going to happen and then what has to happen and then what might happen after that and with this sort of growing realization of what you are going to have to write. Yeah. And what was it like, you know, not just for her, but for you? Oh. Um, because you're so subsumed in this character. You know, I, with all my books, I get so involved with the characters. I'm sure you do too, that you know, if I'm writing about someone who's caught in a snowdrift in the middle of winter, even though I'm in Arizona, I go and put on three sweaters. And, uh, and so knowing what's happening to her and what's going to happen and what she, who, she, who she's going to lo lose, you know, oh, God, I you know, almost don't want to write the next day or I should want to get it over so quickly that you can just walk away from it. It's interesting because I've just today been reading through the first draft of my this year's book. And I've been crying. I've been oh. sitting, there, sitting there crying. How stupid is that? So, you know, if it makes me cry, other people cry. I, I think, I mean, there is some famous person who says, who said, if the author doesn't cry, the reader doesn't cry. You, you in the audience know who this is. So put it in the comments and let yeah. me know who, who I'm forgetting. But that, that, is, that is real, obviously. I mean, one of the tenets of why we write is to make people care. And if and if the author doesn't care, there's no way to make the reader care. Yeah, and yeah. it's the, the central question of this. So how do you how do you get through it? What is it that makes you say, do you say to yourself, this is just a story? Or do you say this means it's powerful? The the latter. This this is a story that has to be told. This is, you know, especially when I'm writing about World War II, I feel so strongly that something we cannot forget. This is how it was. This is that space. This is the brutal reality of what people were like. This is what happened, because, you know, when you hear about all these Holocaust deniers and kids who don't even know what World War Two was, I want to keep this alive. I want every generation to remember this is what the world went through. This is how everybody suffered. Um, so I think that's why I, one of the reasons I write so many World War Two books, it is important to know that there was good versus evil. It's good to know at the end that, that good won, but that along the way, people sacrificed everything they had. Well, you had such a personal relationship with World War II. I did. I was born in the middle of it, and um, I didn't see my father until he came home in 1946. Um, he, yeah, he was sent out to Egypt when my mum was pregnant, and she didn't see him again for all those years. You know, three years, she didn't see him. And... Um, you know, so and I just think she was 21. Imagine you 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 think you're in love with a man and he's gone. And then you sit there for three years thinking, you know, did 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 I really was he really the way I thought he was? And is he gonna come back? Is he gonna come back really changed? Is he gonna come back wounded? Is he come gonna come back angry? Must have been terribly scary for her. And then having you. Yeah, well, I mean, I think I was the thing that kept her going because you know, she had someone to love and someone to adore. So that was 
that was really nice. But then, then my dad came back and there was I, a, a little girl who'd been totally spoilt by her mother, her great aunts, her grandmother. And then this man suddenly came in who tried to tell me what to do. You know, that was not going to work. You know. No, that was not going to work. Probably no. it was, it was not down. And say, I don't want to put it down. <laughs> so it was two months there when he tried to assert authority and, and I was not going to let him. Well, but it's probably lucky that you were so smart and adorable. So um, he, I, I, what a story that is, Reese. And I, that's a fodder for, I missed a comment from someone that I want to make sure that you hear. Um, Karen Tintori says, love, love the Tuscan child. Looking forward to reading the Venice sketchbook. Karen, we love it. I know you will. But don't go right now and get it. Wait till till this is over. And then you can. The Venice sketchbook. So, I want to ask about your next book because that sounds tempting, but let's just go on a little bit about the Venice sketchbook. Yeah. One of the things that's so glorious about this book is the descriptions of the places and the food and the atmosphere and the water and the, you know, this, the, the, and the, the, the Lido. Talk about that a little bit. Um, well, that, you know, I write, every time I write a book, it's a book I want to read, and I look on the shelf, and it's not there. And I think, well, I better write this, because I love books in two time periods. Uh-huh. I love books that go back to the early part of the twentieth century. I love books with a, that lovely hint of romance in them, um, and um, I love going places. My, it's my favorite sort of book is to be taken to a place. And I've always been a great traveler all my life. We, when in normal times, John and I travel all the time. And I love to be there. So when I write the books, I want to take you there. I don't want to say to you, I'm now telling you what it was like in Venice in 1940. No, I want you to look around and go, oh, my God, I'm in Venice 1940. So that's my aim when I'm at a place. I look around all those little tiny things, you know, about the woman who's washing something at a pump in one of the little small squares and there's a cat sleeking around, and, and you know, and, and the smells. What smell am I getting here? You know, I'm getting the smell of of garlic, and then the way they cook the clams, and then that um, spaghetti with conseppe, which is with the octopus ink. And when you eat it, your mouth and your lips are absolutely black. Have you ever done that? And yes. hours after, I mean, it tastes delicious. It tastes very salty. Mm-hmm. But then after you come out, and when you open your mouth. John says, what on earth's the matter with your mouth? And it's totally black because the ink has stained it. You know, so all these things, they make you think, oh, I'm in Venice. And so that's what I try to say is what's different about Venice? What can I tell people about? And one of the things, of course, is the big religious festivals. Even today, they have all of their big religious festivals. You know, on St. Mark's Day, they have an angel that flies across the, you know, they have a person dressed up as an angel who flies across the square to St. Mark's Cathedral, and they build this bridge of boats, like the, the one in the book where there's a bridge of, of boats. It's now a much more stable thing than that, but they walk across they walk across to the, the, the church on the other island um, for, for the, um, uh, the uh, procession, and then the procession, the same thing at Santa Maria della Salute. So... Any time of year you go, there will be some sort of religious procession. And I wanted them to know, you know, this is, they take it seriously. I love it when she's walking through the square and she sees straw outside people's doors. And she says, oh, is this to keep the aqua alta, the floods at bay? And he says, no, it's for for St. Lucia's donkey. And, um, you know, on St. Lucia's day, 
They, the kids put straw out for the donkey, you know. And so I love things like that, that there are parts of the world where this really matters still. I think it's wonderful. You couldn't really know that without going there. And I think that's one of the one of the glories of your writing, that it's not just, you're not writing a guidebook. You're taking your characters and putting them in a place where they are interacting with the setting. And as a result of that, um, the setting emerges. And, and one of the things that is, you know, when you take a Brit and send her to Venice, no matter when it is, which one it is, that's a fish out of water too. I mean, in water in Venice, but you're forcing someone to have a new experience. She, you know, Letty and Caroline were forced to have a new experience. Talk about that for you as well. You, you know, as a child, you learned to be comfortable um, in another country and you're making us be comfortable too through their eyes. Well, I think one of, um, when I look at most of my books, the hero or the heroine is an outsider. Mm -hmm. Lady Georgie, she might be related to the royal family, but she's also, her mother was a fairly humble actress. And so she never feels she totally belongs in either camp. Molly Murphy has just arrived on in the Lower East Side of New York. And imagine coming from a small cottage in a bleak part of Ireland and suddenly you're in that teeming humanity with the noise and the smells and everything. You notice everything. Whereas if you'd grown up there, you wouldn't notice it all. So I think it works well to have an outsider because uh, you do notice everything. And that's when I'm there, obviously, I'm an outsider. I notice, uh, you know, I love, for example, noticing a little group of Italian men standing together. You always think they're about to break into a fight because they use their hands all the time. They go, hey, come stupide, you can't be charming. You know, and um, they're probably just discussing what they're going to have for lunch. But it's it's terribly dramatic. And you notice that if you don't live there. I mean, it's, it only, it could only, I'm just realizing I'm talking with my hands too. It could, it could only be there. And that just, that really transports you there. Yeah, yeah. When you, how do you know when you're when you're writing your book, when you wrote, when you finished the Venice sketchbook? And I know about deadlines and that kind of thing. But yeah. how did you know? Um, I'm reading now what Penny says. So fascinating. I swear I could listen to you to read the phone book <laughs> and be engaged. Thank you, Penny. When you when you were finished with the Venice sketchbook, kind of a writerly question. How how did you know it was finished what's that what's that feeling when you're done oh that's such a good question because sometimes I think I finished too early and people sort of say oh I didn't get time to savor the ending oh. I, and especially if I'm writing a mystery by the time we've solved the mystery I don't want to bore people by going on too long afterwards but then I think people like to have all the loose ends tied up and they like to see the characters in a good place at the end so um, I knew I was going to have Caroline flying back to London, being able to look look down at Venice from the plane and look forward to something. And obviously she's hoping she can go and get her son back. But I didn't expect until I wrote it that she was going to find something on the plane that might really change her life. And I'm not going to tell you what that was. Well, of course not, of course not. <laughs> but I mean, that's what I love. One of the many things I love about your work is that about your writing is that you're uh, at every moment on the page, you're open to something that might happen to your character because your character is so real. Well, don't you find, I mean, I find with my characters often that they, um, uh, you know, once you've given them a book, 
a story, they tend to take over. And sometimes you say, well, you're going to go here. And they go, oh, no, sorry, no, 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 no. Oh, no. And they keep saying, why do you keep doing so-and-so? You keep getting it wrong. And I have to say, oh, I'm sorry. You know, and, um, But it's really true. They, I've had so many dialogues where we start a dialogue. And some in the middle, you think, this dialogue's going very strangely in the wrong direction. But they, that's where they want to go. So you just have to follow along. And, um, you know, yeah. something, something good happens in the end when you when you allow them. If you try, I, I don't ever want to be the puppet master. You know, I don't want to say this is where you're going. I want to be behind the drapes in a room watching them and going, oh, you're going to do that next. I wouldn't do that if I were you. But that's that's what makes it interesting. I so agree. And it's it's, it's a thing that as an author, you can't make that happen. You can't say, okay, I'm just going to let the character take over because then they won't. Yeah. You really have to let it happen. And somehow your writer brain, your writer subconscious. Um, I mean, I've had characters say things and I think, why would you say that? Yeah, or why would you be so nasty? You know, you're supposed to be yeah. a nice person. And I think, well, yeah. my favorite one though, my favorite one was in one of my books where was where um, someone had to die. And I thought, you, you can't die because I need you for chapter 32 and you're going to give the big answer. Yeah. It was just, you know, it had to happen. And I thought, okay, you know, I'm typing it. And, and it was it was the great thing. Um, we're running out of time like crazy. I can't believe this. So talk. I'm talking about loose ends that you brought up. Tell about what's happening with your daughter. Ah, well, this is a, a great thrill. I had been writing the Molly Murphy series and the Royal Spinus series and a standalone. So something had to go. So I put the Molly Murphy series on hold. Um, and I've been writing a Royal Spinus book each year and a standalone. My daughter came to me last year and she said, I think that I would like to revive the Molly Murphy series with you. So I thought, oh, okay. I mean, I knew she was a good writer and I knew that we, we'd written a children's book together. So I knew we got, we worked together, but you know, until you do it. So I said, well, it would have to be a really good story to come back in. So she came up with a really brilliant plot line. She said, it's been four years since you've done a book, so you need to remind people who Molly Murphy is. So the book is going to be a story that uh, that happens on Ellis Island when a woman who looks very like Molly is accused of murder. And, of course, Molly has to prove her innocence. So you've got this repeat of Molly's own entrance to, to New York, um, and we're meeting the uh, uh, friendly characters and we've got a play and we've got all the people we loved. But Claire came up with this and it's really brilliant. And then we started working and I thought I'd have to guide her and say, you know, in this, this scene, we really need this dialogue to speed up a bit. And we need to see a bit more tension. No, she just took it and ran with it. And she'd say, oh, here you are. I just, I sat and did the party scene and then it was going well. So I did the next three scenes and I'd look down and they'd go, brilliant. And then she'd say, oh, and so I had this fun little scene where they're actually bashing a carpet and all sorts of all sorts of um, hidden angst and anger comes out. And I go, oh, you know, so she just literally was a, a joy to work with. And the good thing is that I can do a couple more books with her and then gradually I can step back and she can take over the series, which is what I want. So the next one's coming out. My editor already loves it. It's coming out next February, I believe, and it's called Wild Irish Rose. I mean, but Reese, book aside, and I know we will all run out and get that. And congratulations to you and Claire on this amazing accomplishment. But as a mom, when your daughter 
um, is so brilliant and so um, admiring of you that she wants to do something with you. What do you think about that? Well, I am thrilled because I've always known she's had great creative talent. Um, and, you know, she she teaches all day. She has twins at home. So she's never had that impetus to sit sit down and finish a book for herself because there's just not time. So this is great for her, too, the fact that she, you know, I've actually given her a place in the mystery world, which she would have had to do many years to earn. So, you know, it's nice as a mom to know that you've done that, but it's also nice to know that someone else in the future will be reading Molly Murphy books going, oh, well, this was written by Claire Broyles. It's really good. So, you know, that, that that's that's fantastic. That's great. Congratulations on that. And my last question, maybe last, is you said earlier that you were working on another book. Dare I, dare I ask you what that is? Well, I can't seem to walk away from World War II, but this one is so very different. Um, it's different from any of the other books. My heroine is a Cockney, an uneducated Cockney woman whose life has been very confined by uh, her expectations. And uh, she's married to a bullying husband and uh, uh, then he is drafted and he's sent away and she gets a job for a first time and then she is bombed and she's buried in rubble and, and she's quite badly hurt. And they send her, they evacuate her out to the countryside. Only the place they evacuate her to, there's not many, not many places left who will take in people. The place they evacuate her to is right next to a big bomber command base. And every night these giant planes take off flying to Germany. And every morning, several of them don't come back. So it's a place where life is very precarious. And um, she meets a young airman who's standing out there in the rain and she brings him in for a cup of tea and she sees him looking around as if he can't believe where he is in the kitchen. And he says, it's just like my mother's kitchen. And she realizes that that's what they need. They, that there's a pub, they can get drunk. They need a tiny sliver of home. So she sets up a tea, she persuades the homeowner to use one, she's a big house and all the rooms are covered in dust sheets, to use one of her rooms to set up a little tea shop. And so these, these young men come here and they sit for a few minutes there at home with someone pouring them a cup of tea and a cake. And um, they can forget that they've got to go back and fly to Germany tonight. So it's, it, and of course, lots of things happen. It's, a, it's quite a harrowing story and some sad things happen. You are, you are, you are, you are too you, you are too fabulous. I, is, it called, is it called A Tiny Sliver of Home or does it have a title? No, it, it's actually called at the moment. I haven't given it in and had them fight over the title with me. It's called The Tea Shop at the Edge of Eternity. Oh, you know, can you hear the applause? Can you hear the applause from the people? listening to this. Well, we will wait for that. But meanwhile, congratulations on the Venice Sketchbook, which is number one in every way. It's the craziest thing I've ever seen, Reese. You write a book and suddenly it's, it has number one all over it. Anything, you, any last words that you'd like this huge audience to hear about the Venice Sketchbook and what it means to you? Um, well, God, that, that's made me speechless, hasn't it? I love going back to Venice and I love books. I love books that touch my soul. You know, when, when I read a book, I don't just want to be told a story. I want to be taken somewhere and I want to see someone's life 
that's meaningful. It's a real person who, whose life meant a lot. Um, not just, you know, not just an adventure story, not just a love story. It's someone's life and you want to go afterwards, you know, you want to cry. You want to cry, you want to laugh. And afterwards you want to sit there thinking, oh, poor Letty. I wonder why she, you know, you want, you want it to keep going with you. You don't want to let go of it. I love that. To make a book like the Venice Sketchbook um, be a part of our lives is such a joy. And we are so grateful um, for this gift from you, Reese. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. For, I, I mean, you know, I, I never need an excuse to chat to you normally. And when we sit together, we probably don't stop talking for three hours with our glass of wine. But um, it's lovely to see you even at distance. And let's hope the time comes soon when we can really sit together again and I can give you a big hug. I can't wait for that. Thank you. And thank you to everybody today who's listened to us. You know, I know there are so many of these Zoom things right now and so many of these online things, and you could be overwhelmed with them. So if you're listening to us today, thank you for taking the time. And thank you all. Exactly, Reese. I agree with you so thoroughly. Thank all of you for watching and listening to Authors on the Air. Stay, stay kind, and we will see you next time. Thank you. Bye.